What a blessing for our church to be able to have somebody like Mark, who's so gifted in leading worship, step away and see others step in, and we don't lose a beat. It just is a great time of worship, and I'm grateful uh, to you, Tim, and to the team. You do a wonderful job. Um, I do want to reiterate something that uh, Tanner said this morning. We have this uh, uh, newcomer's lunch today, and uh, we've not done something like this before, but we really want to make sure that folks who are visiting Melanie Park have a chance to meet folks and be a part of this church family. That includes if this is your first time. We would love for you to come on down and have a meal with us that will be provided for you, and we look forward to, to sharing some time together. As we get started this morning, I want to introduce a, a figure to you who is uh, part of the civil rights movement that you may not know much about. His name is John Perkins. He came on the scene a little less than two years after Martin Luther King was killed. Uh, John Perkins is a remarkable man, a strong believer. He's alive today uh, and still a man of great influence. And he had that same heart as Martin Luther King. He wanted to be involved in nonviolent resistance. But much like Martin Luther King, he wasn't given the same. In February of 1970, there were some students who were returning from a rally that he was leading in Mendenhall, Mississippi. They were in a couple of vans, and on their way home, they were being followed by police. And as soon as they crossed over into Rankin County... These vans were pulled over by those police, and the students were asked to leave the vans, and they were immediately arrested and taken to jail. One of the men on that trip, a driver of one of the vans, a man by the name of Doug Hummel, was put separately in a police car in the back seat, and he was beaten by the police in the back seat all the way to the jail. When he arrives at the jail, he finds that he and the other students were beaten with billy clubs and blackjacks until they were almost unconscious. They were completely surrounded by hate. Somehow, John Perkins got word of what was going on, so he quickly made his way to Brandon, Mississippi, where these folks were at. And when he arrived, he was met out in the parking lot by a highway patrolman and 12 other officers who then commenced to beat John Perkins to within an inch of his life. Even having him wipe up his own blood as he slipped in and out of consciousness. When John recalls these events, he says they were like savages, like horror in the night. He says, I cannot forget their faces. They were so twisted with hate. He said, I was like looking in white-faced demons. He said, hate did that to them. But what's most remarkable about this whole scene is that John did not return hate with hate. In fact, he had compassion on these people. He said, I could not hate back. When I saw what hate had done to them, I could not hate back. He said, all I could do was have pity on them. (laughs) That very night, John says that he prayed to the Lord. 
He said, Lord, if you help me get out of jail alive, I promise to preach a gospel that will bring healing to them as well. Somehow, John Perkins found love in the midst of hate. I I tell you that story because we're going to find David in a very similar place in this next season of his life. He will be a man surrounded by hate. We've already seen that Saul has attempted to pin him to the wall with his spear some three times. He's been forced into the front lines of battle thinking that he would ultimately die. David is surrounded by hate. And so the question is, how in the world is he going to survive? And if he does survive, what kind of man will he be on the other side? What will all that hate do to David's heart? Over the next two Sundays, we're going to look at a set of relationships that God used in David's life. The first was his marriage to Michael. The second, his friendship with Jonathan. And we're going to see how God used those to show love in the midst of hate. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we know as we come to your word that even though we're going to consider stories that are, are hundreds and thousands of years old, they have deep relevance to our lives right now here today. The hate that coursed through the veins of Saul and those who served him is alive and well in our world today. We see it literally every day. And so maybe there's something that we should take away that would impact how we live in this world of hate. What does it mean to show God's love and to see God's love in the midst of all that? Give us eyes to see and a heart that understands and walks out changed. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you want to, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. And as you're doing that, I want to kind of remind you of where we've been recently. Last week, we looked at that idol of selfishness that was hidden deep within Saul's heart. We know Saul was a man who was ruled by a desire to please people. David ruled, was ruled by a desire to please God. Enough to risk his life to stand for the name of the living God. Saul was a king who wanted to be in control. And yet David, having been anointed, was a king who was content to serve. Saul was prideful. David was humble. Saul was rebellious. And even though David wasn't perfect, as we will see more and more as his story continues, David was repentant. And I hope that when we look at this contrasting characters, when we have these two lives lined up, that it really highlights some of the most important things that we need to see in the heart of David, because that's the why we're doing this in the beginning, is we want to see what God sees when he chooses David, a man after his own heart. So what is it that he sees? Because the Lord was with David. And as we know, the spirit had departed from Saul. David was being transformed by the work of the Spirit. And in the absence of the Spirit, selfishness ruled in Saul's life. And as we will see, selfish people use people for selfish gain. You may remember that one of the things that Saul said was that whoever defeats Goliath will be awarded three things. These are three big things, right? 
they will have, one, abundant riches. Two, they will be free from taxes for them and their family. And three, they will have the hand of his oldest daughter in marriage. Those are the promises of the one who stood victorious over Goliath. And we know that was David. So let's see how that turns out. Chapter 18, begin reading with me in verse 17. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter, Mirath. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant man for me and fight for the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, My hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. I want to pause here to recognize the fact that Saul is putting strings attached to his promise. (laughs) That's not what he said in the beginning. He said, Whoever has victory over Goliath gets his, the hand of his daughter in marriage. But now he's adding strings. He's saying, if you prove to be valiant in battle, then you can have the hand of my daughter in marriage. Saul knows that the more time David spends in battle, the more likely it is that he will eventually die. And so he goes back on his original promise, adding new conditions and hope that that might be fulfilled. Let's look at how David responds in verse 18. But David said to Saul, who am I? What is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? So it came about at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Maholathite, for a wife. See, David responds respectfully to Saul. I I find it fascinating that he didn't argue with Saul about his original promise that would have been obvious to all. He, He didn't complain about once again having to go back into battle, which he's done over and over again. Instead, he says, Saul, I'm really not worthy to be a part of the family of the king. You may remember I told you that Saul came from an impressive family pedigree he was well known because of their wealth very successful if this were modern day they and their family would have been involved in the local country club they would have been in the upper echelon of society David grew up on a farm he was a shepherd he was a country boy and he didn't belong in the country club I think Saul knew that, and so he ends up giving his daughter to a man named Adriel. We don't know a lot about this man, but I think it's fair to assume that he was a man of noble quality, like Saul. And because of Saul's selfish heart, we know that it was less about what his daughter wanted and more about what made him look good. He was using his daughter to gain something for himself, and he completely ignores the promise that he made to David. So that's just the first promise that he'll break. Look at verse 20. Now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. And when they told Saul the thing was agreeable to him, and Saul thought, I'll give her to him that she may become a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David, for a second time you may be my son-in-law today. Then Saul commanded his servant, speak to David secretly, saying, Behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Now therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servant spoke the words to David, but David said, Is it trivial in your sight 
to become the king's son-in-law? Since I am a poor man and lightly esteemed. And the servants of Saul reported to him according to these words which David spoke. Selfish people use people. And Saul had a plan to use his daughter, Michael. Her love for David could come in handy because her affection might be able to be used as a trap, especially if David shared that affection, which apparently he does because it was agreeable to him. So uh, David, Saul goes to David after David says, look, I- I'm a man who doesn't have the means to be the son-in-law of the king. What he's saying there is, look, I don't have the money to afford the dowry that is required to have the hand of your daughter in marriage. That's what he's saying. And Saul comes to him and says, oh, listen, don't worry about that. I know you're a man lightly esteemed, but if you'll go back to battle, you can win the right to have her hand in marriage. Now, I hope that that causes you to pause for just a minute and think, but wait a second. One of the things that Saul promised was abundant riches. So there should be no issue of whether David could afford the dowry to have her his daughter's hand in marriage. David should be a wealthy man. What this tells us is that Saul has broke promise number two. Because that's what selfish people do. They only think about themselves. And so he sends David back into battle. But let's look at what the conditions are beginning in verse 25. So Saul said this. Thus you shall say to David, the king does not desire, desire any dowry. Oh, how nice, since he broke his promise. Except for a hand, uh, 100 foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. When his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Before the days had expired, David rose up went he and his men and struck down 200 men among the Philistines. Then David brought their foreskins and gave them in full number to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, for a wife. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle. And it happened so often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul. So his name was highly esteemed. So I think it's safe to say this didn't quite work out like Saul thought it might. He made an unreasonable request, silly, foolish request for David to earn the right to marry Michael. And apparently David shared the affection that Michael had towards him because it says in verse 26 that it pleased David to do what Saul had asked him to do. He was honored to win the right of her hand in marriage. And so he goes out instead of gathering up 100 foreskins, he comes back with 200 and presents them to Saul. Now Saul has been caught in the trap that he set for David. The last thing Saul wanted was for David to be his son-in-law. 
David is a threat to the throne in Saul's mind, and now he's just made a path for him to enter into that position. David has become, as a son-in-law, a rightful heir to the throne. It backfired. Now, I don't know about you, but I read stories like this, and it makes me think of other things that have happened in Scripture, like Joseph, right? Remember what it says in the story of Joseph? What men intended for evil, God used for good. Well, that very same thing is happening here. Saul keeps sending David into battle to die, and David keeps returning in victory. In an effort to diminish his fame, Saul is only making David more popular among the people. In his effort to push David farther and farther from the throne, he's actually getting closer and closer. What Saul intends for evil, God is using for good. In his sovereignty, God is even using David's enemies to bring blessing into David's life. It's true when we look at the life of Jonathan. It's true when we look at the life of David. And it's also true when we look at the cross. Because the enemies of the Lord were determined to put Jesus to death. Much like Saul, they used their power for selfish gain. But God turned their evil into good. In his sovereignty, God used the enemies of Jesus to bring salvation to the world. God used the enemies of Jesus to bring salvation to the world because his death becomes our victory over sin. His sacrifice is the means for our forgiveness before a holy and righteous God. Satan used his influence, as he always does, in an attempt to destroy God's anointed. But instead, God used that evil intent to bring a blessing to the world. Just think about it. God used the greatest evil in human history to bring about the greatest good the world will ever know. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually woven all throughout Scripture in Joseph and David, where God uses man's evil intent to bring about his righteous good. And so much so in our, sto- in our story here that, that Saul recognizes that God's hand is on David. It says in verse 28, Saul knew the Lord was with David. And that knowledge caused great fear for Saul. Why? Because Saul has been a rebellious man who has opposed God's hand. And now God's hand is on David. And so David has become Saul's enemy. And yet God uses that animosity towards David to increase his fame among the people he will one day rule. God uses man's evil intents to bring about his righteous good. Look at, if you would, turn over to chapter 19. I want you to begin reading with me in verse 11. Chapter 19, verse 11. The interlude here we talked about last week, this is where Jonathan convinced Saul not to murder David. He agreed that what, da- or what his son Jonathan was telling him was true, 
and that he should not do that evil intent that he had in his mind. But let's look at verse 11 and see how this story continues. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. David is surrounded by hate. Saul has repeatedly tried to take his life, whether it was trying to pin him to the wall with the spear or put him in the front lines of battle so that he would, dis- that he would die. Yet, despite being confronted with the truth of how evil and sinful it would be to put an innocent man to death, Saul has betrayed those convictions and gone against what he knew was true in his heart. His plan was to take David's life. Selfish people use people for selfish gain. The servants have just as much of a lust for power, apparently, as Saul did, because they were willing to comply. Their success is tied to his power. Let's look at how it continues in verse 12. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went out and fled and escaped. And Michael took the household idol and laid on it on the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair on its head and covered it with David's clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. (laughs) See, Michael came up with a plan to save David's life. She first let him out of the window, much like Rahab did with the spies, so that he could have some time to escape. In order to buy time, she takes the household idol, covers it in David's clothes, put it in David's bed, puts goat's hair to make it look like hair, And so that when the servants came to do what Saul had commanded and put David to death, she basically said, no, don't bother David now, he's sick. (laughs) It's a little bit amusing if you think about it. Here's this stiff object, see, look, he's really sick. You don't want to go in there because you don't want what he has, trust me, right? And, And I don't know if it gives you any pause, but this whole household idol thing bothers me, especially since it appears that it was a life size statue, right? But what's interesting is that household idols were not that uncommon during the day, at least not among pagans. So what that tells us is that the only reason Michael would have a household idol in her room was that she grew up in a home where that was okay. See, apparently Saul's compromise passed down to his children, and now it was coming back to haunt him. Look at verse 15. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in his bed, that I may put him to death. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with a quilt of goat's hair on its head. So Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me like this? And let my enemies go so that he has escaped. And Michael said to Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I put you to death? See, up until this time, Saul has asked everyone to do his dirty work. But here, he's the biggest coward of all. He he sees that David is weakened by sickness. So what does he do? He says, oh, I'll take care of this. Sends his servants in to subdue David so that he could literally stab him in the back while he was down. But when his servants returned to the room, they found out the trick that has been played. It's not really David. It's the household idol. (laughs) So Saul confronts his daughter and says, Michael, why have you deceived me? 
And in my opinion, what Michael should have said was, because that's what you taught me to do, Dad. Aren't you proud of me? Compromise and deceit are a family trait. Michael doesn't actually say that, but she does lie to protect her image, just like her dad. What does she say? She basically says, David threatened to kill me if I didn't let him out the window. She makes up a story to protect herself that isn't true. David said he would kill me if I didn't let him escape. Michael learned well from her father. You've heard the saying, an acorn doesn't fall too far from the tree. That's true of what we see in this passage this morning. Now, as we finish up this morning, I want to take some time to consider David's reflection on what we just walked through together. Remember, our goal is to understand what is happening in David's heart. So we're going to kind of peek behind the curtain a little bit, and we're going to do something that most people wouldn't allow us to do, and we're going to take a look at David's journal. We're going to see what he wrote about these events that took place in his life. So turn to journal entry number 59, also known as Psalm 59. Same idea. David is reflecting on the events that have taken place. In fact, if you'll look at the beginning of your psalm, it may say, as it does in mine, that David writes this psalm when Saul sent men... And they watched his house in order to kill him. So Saul or David is writing this psalm, having been surrounded by hate. And we get a chance to see what is happening in his heart. Let's begin looking at verse 1. Psalm 59, verse 1. David prays, Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from bloodthirsty men. See how they lie in wait for me? Fierce men who conspire against me. For no offense of sin of mine, O Lord, I've done no wrong. Yet they are ready to attack me. Arise to help me. Look at my plight. O Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish All the nations show no mercy to wicked traitors. See, David at this point has nowhere to turn, and so as we see, he turns to God. His emotions are raw. They are real. These are reflections of what is happening in his life. Evil men are after him, and as he says, I have done nothing wrong to merit that kind of hatred. David is experiencing unjust persecution and so he turns to a holy and righteous judge he looks to God to defend him in this time of need look at how it continues in verse 6 they return at evening snarling like dogs and prowl about the city see what they spew from their mouths they spew out swords from their lips and they say who can hear us But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You scoff at all those nations. O my strength, I watch for you. You, O God, are my fortress, my loving God. David describes his enemies much like we saw with John Perkins. John Perkins says they were white-faced demons. David says they're like 
howling dogs. Both David and John saw hate in the face of their enemies. And they saw how that hate turned these men into savages. And they did not want hate to do to them what it had done to these other people. So instead of returning more hate upon hate, they turned to a loving God. They found shelter in a fortress of love. Those are the words that David uses. You are my fortress, my loving God. They turn to God and find love in the midst of hate. And like we see with John Perkins, David says something pretty amazing in the midst of all this going on. Look at verse 11. But do not kill them, O Lord, our shield, or my people will forget. In your might, make them wander about and and bring them down for the sins of their mouths, for the words of their lips. Let them be caught in their pride. For the curses and lies they utter consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more. Then it will be known to the ends of the earth that God rules over Jacob. David prays that his enemies would not perish. He confronts the horror. He he speaks to the issue as he sees it being true. But he says, don't kill them. Don't kill them because I want their lives to be a testimony to my people. I want my people to see what happens when you let sin reign in their lives. They will become their own demise. They will be caught in their own traps. They will be killed by the hate in their heart. And I want my people to see the effect that that has. He wants righteousness to reign, not hate to prevail. Look at how he finishes in verse 14. They return at evening, snarling like dogs, and prowl about the city. They wander about for food and howl if not satisfied. But I will sing of your strength. In the morning, I will sing of your love, for you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. Oh, my strength. I sing praise to you, O God. You are my fortress, my loving God. I hope that you read this psalm this morning different than you've ever read it before because you understand the setting in which it was written. You understand that David is reflecting on events that are happening in his life in that moment you understand how David is surrounded by hate and instead of fighting back with that same hate he turns to God and finds love love in the midst of hate it reminds me of a saying that Martin Luther King once said and this is powerful so I want you to listen real closely to this You've probably heard it before, but I want these words to sink deep. It says, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. I believe this is relevant for us today. Because I, I believe increasingly we live in a culture of hate. We know all too well... That racism is alive and well 
in our country. The sin of prejudice still exists, and it goes both ways. You know, I told that story about what happened with the police there in Mendenhall, or excuse me, Brandon, Mississippi. And I can't help but look at my friend Matt in the service that he does as a police officer in our country and know that a lot of that hate is turned right back towards him. We return hate for hate. That's what we do in America. We see it in our politics. I mean, such vitriolic speech. The things that people say to each other publicly as leaders of our own country. But we're not immune to it in the church. Skyrocketing divorce rates, church splits right and left. We live with an undercurrent of hate in our culture. Because we've forgotten what it means to show love. We've forgotten what it means to show love. In fact, I think we really don't know how to interact with people who are not like us. Very often, we simply reject what we do not understand. And as a result, we become polarized by our differences. But segregation is not a solution for struggles in relationships. Whether you're talking about marriage, whether you're talking about the church, whether you're talking about racism, any of those things are not solved by going our separate ways. It's not a solution. The strongholds must be destroyed by the gospel. As a Christian, we are duty-bound to love our neighbor, whether our neighbor is black or white, Hispanic, from Iran. Doesn't matter what their sexual orientation is. Doesn't matter what their political agenda might be. It doesn't even matter what their religious beliefs are. We are duty-bound to love our neighbor, period. Why? Because even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even when we were enemies of God, God loved us. We are duty-bound to do the same. We forgive others because we have been forgiven through Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf. As a follower of Christ, we are to love our neighbor without condition, without boundary, and without limitation. See, I believe David gives us the only answer to how we faithfully live this out in a hate-filled word world. When David is surrounded by hate, what does he do? He turns to a fortress of love. He turns to God. There's a passage in 1 John 4, 8 that you're familiar with. It says this, Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in him. See, here's the key. Until we walk faithfully in a relationship with God, his love cannot be evident in our life. When we fail to show love, it's pure and simple. We fail to show love because we fail to know God. Love will be a foreign concept until it becomes the reality of our personal walk with Christ. 
until we embrace that truth as a church, until we, we walk faithfully in that reality as believers, we will have no influence in the world around us. One scholar said, when we get too cozy with the culture, we become blind to its evil. I say only when we faithfully follow Christ will we be able to show love in a hate-filled world. So maybe a good place to start this week is 1 John chapter 4. Just take some time and slowly go through that chapter and consider what it says about what it means to show love. Where do you go? What does it look like? How do you do it? And see what that passage has to say about that topic. And let me give you one additional suggestion. I was talking to somebody recently this week who uh, we were talking about how we journal from time to time and how significant that is for us in our own spiritual walks. I think one of the reasons that so many people struggle to live out their convictions is because they've forgotten how to reflect on God's truth. They might read it, but then they just move on. They don't stop long enough to consider, huh, I wonder how that applies to my life. I wonder how I can live that out today. You know, I hadn't thought about that before, and that kind of stings a little bit. What am I going to do about that? That's what reflection looks like. And if we go to God's word and that's not a part of how we interact with it, we're going to walk away the same person as you were when you entered in. Because the word has no power apart from reflection on its truth. Look at Saul. He knew the truth. It was very clear in his head. You know, Jonathan, you're right. It is evil to kill an innocent man. But it never made it to his heart because he didn't reflect on a loving God. So take some time to reflect and then share it with someone. You've got the privilege to read David's journal. Maybe just share one entry with one of your friends and see if maybe that might create a culture of love in a world of hate. Let's pray together. You know, Lord, every, <laughs> every Sunday I think, man, that seems to be real relevant to the world we live in. And I say it every Sunday. And it's because your word is forever true. It's just as relevant today as it was the day it was written. Because you're speaking about the reality of what exists in human hearts, and that's unchanged. You're speaking about the reality of who you are as a loving God, and that's unchanged. And so I pray, Father, that we wouldn't just skate through days like today and time in your word and move on having heard it but not being changed by it. May we be reflective. May we consider what it says and how it applies to our life so that we live differently and can influence a world around us for your namesake. Help us to have courage like David, who was unwilling to stand by and watch your name be defamed among your enemies. Instead, stand in the name of love. Father, help us to be faithful to keep coming back to that fortress, the fortress of a loving God. That's our only hope for living faithfully in a world of hate. Teach us to do that. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day. See you downstairs.